What's up, everyone? This is an all-new episode. It's Suiting Up, presented by Public.com and OutSystems, episode number seven of season three, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Okay, world-renowned and acclaimed writer is only part of my next guest stacked resume. She's been named to practically every list of most influential people, most recently named to the most powerful women in sports list by Adweek. In 2021, she partnered with Spotify and launched her own podcast network aimed to elevate black women. And that's become her mission to educate, uplift, and engage in equality for black, indigenous, and people of color with her emphasis on women of color through the avenue of sports, politics, and activism. Over 20 years, 20 years, she's demonstrated the perseverance and resilience that's changed an entire industry. She was the first ever black woman sports reporter. Then she became a blockbuster personality and host at ESPN, on her way to building a media empire. She even hosts a weekly radio show now with Carrie Champion and writes for The Atlantic, Boss. During Women's History Month, we recognize those who have changed the world and those continuing to do the good work by uncovering truths and amplifying the important stories of so many others. I met Jamel through, maybe to no surprise, Twitter three years ago while she was uncovering a powerful story on Angelo Ruiz a Seven Flames lacrosse player, a team made up of mostly Native American players who played in a high school lacrosse league in North Dakota. That team Ruiz played on faced racial slurs, excessive physicality throughout their season, and then they were banned from play. Jamel covered it at the time for the undefeated. We talk about it on the show, as well as several other powerful stories and moments, like her time helping Kobe Bryant. My favorite moment from the show? Well, given her acceleration in her political writing career, she told me when asked why she still spends so much time writing in sports that, quote, sports is the one thing in this country that brings us together. Today's show is made possible by our presenting sponsors, FirstPublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social, too, so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. They democratize investing while giving us space to talk about it and OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile to solve for your business needs. We use them at the PLL. They helped us design our COVID app for the championship series this past summer, and we continue to use them for our future health and safety protocol among our players, staff, coaches, and fans. Thank you, Public and OutSystems. Here's the show. Jamel. I saw this week that you were uh, named one of the most powerful women in sports. That was by Adweek. I tweeted uh, beneath it that you should receive this award every year and agnostic of gender. So congrats on that. Well, thank you. Um, I don't know about every year. And the scary thing about being on a list like that is you look at the other people on the list and then you look at their resumes and immediately I'm thinking, I do not belong on any list with Jeannie Buss, <laughs> you know? And there's a ton of other women that were on there where I'm just looking at their career accomplishments and I'm like, eh, not quite the same, but I appreciate the and am humbled by the recognition on, nonetheless. Well, it's an interesting thing to think about because, you know, Jeannie Buss runs the Lakers organization, Danny Garcia, who you had on your Vice show with Dwayne Johnson about purchasing the XFL, so a different level of ownership of an of entire league. And then Stephanie McMahon's on there. And, you know, so there's owners and operators, but the the voice and the influence that you carry stretches far beyond ownership. And it's, it's an interesting time that we're in as I think, at least from my perspective, business and marketing and media were driven almost purely on economics. And now it's really about 
share a voice. And share a voice, I think, has been amplified more than ever over the last four years as our country's been kind of pulled apart, both politically and from an ideological standpoint, a lot of things and lessons have been exposed. And you have been a driving force, not only encouraging athletes who are activists, but also the the consistent engagement and kind of opening of sports to wider conversations around race, around gender and politics. So that to me is is kind of why I mention your work being perennial. What's your North Star? How do you think about your day to day and what drives you? What drives me is, you know, I have a passion for storytelling and a, a passion for journalism. You know, both are kind of intertwined, but the journalism element of it is a little bit different because I think a, a lot of journalists, at least the really good ones, I should say, and the, the the ones that are kind of in this for the right reasons, most many of us, we got into this because you have a particular passion for truth and for justice as well. Look, there's a reason why a lot of the superheroes in the comic book universe have been journalists. You know, Peter Parker was a photojournalist. Superman was a journalist. Um, Lois Lane was a journalist. <laughs> like, there's a, there's a, you know, though she wasn't a, a superhero necessarily, but like, there's a reason why that theme it continues to come back to that, and that's because there is a sense of right and wrong. And it, as the phrase that we uh, that was often drilled into me as I came up in journalism was like, your role is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, hmm. right? And so that's what you do. And because of that. I, I think I wake up with that mission every day. It's like, okay, how can I comfort the afflicted and how can I afflict the comfortable, hmm. you know? And so many of the things I'm involved with now have that root in mind. And also I think they're, especially now in this country, as we're continuing to be really uh, battered by misinformation it's been weaponized. This is, if you are a career journalist, um, in many ways, a very frightening time because, you know, we we seek information, we absorb a lot of it, and to see how it's been able to be perverted and how it's been able to politicize what shouldn't be politicized. You know, the fact that we're debating masks in this country is just, like, really ridiculous. I mean... It's crazy. Yeah, it's very crazy. And you look at things like that, is that because... COVID itself, a a virus that is killing people has been able to be politicized and therefore people don't trust what they're told or they feel like they can't be as bad as they say, then in many ways it's, it kind of lets me know journalism has failed and that's kind of heartbreaking because even with all the problems that were going on, when you look back to some of the other crises we face as a country, be it wars, very heavy international incidents happening, what was going on in the country, the one place that people thought they could come to to figure out what was going on or to make it make sense was to somebody like a Walter Cronkite or, you know, just yeah. a news source that you could be like, okay, they're telling me the truth, but that's gone now. And so people are left to their own devices. And so they're influenced by a meme more so than they are the six o'clock news. And so it has left journalism in a very dark place. So anyway, um, I guess I say all that to say is that every day as I'm going through the no less than 500 things I have to do in a day, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out ways that I can bring a little more balance to the force yeah. to use a little Star Wars. <laughs> well, I mean, I want to talk about your career trajectory. I was telling you before the show started that my DP, Brett Roberts, graduated from Maryland in 2018 when you gave a commencement speech there at the university. And I asked him, 
one takeaway as he was a journalism major, and it was that journalism has to be your passion. Otherwise, get out of it because it's going to be really hard. Hearing what you just said there too, though, reminds me a little bit of, and I'll, I'll try to like draw some sense of an analogy here. Ted Leonsis, who, who bought the Caps in the 90s, he was the first NHL owner to invite bloggers, so the age of the internet, invite bloggers to cover the Caps because the Washington Post wouldn't even cover them. And then the age, the internet age of, of inviting bloggers became a thing and style of writing and journalism started to shift a little bit to more informal styles of writing, which in, in a catch-22 way opened up the opportunity, much like podcasting has opened up the opportunity for those that weren't terrestrial radio trained, like a Howard Stern. But the age of Facebook and what still persists today has become no sense of regulations where I think, and I want your opinion, but like there will be some, if our government can regulate and call Facebook a journalism or a media company, then they are held to the same standards that a New York Times or a Washington Post or a Wall Street Journal will be held to. Now there's huge dollars tied to their kind of First Amendment, we're a social media community, we're a platform. But I, I see loads of misinformation starting there. There is a lot of misinformation that Facebook is probably the, uh, gosh, it's hard to say the worst of it, but like, I guess in terms of mainstream platforms, I mean, they are the worst. Yeah. And Mark Zuckerberg has shown he has zero interest in cleaning it up. They've done very surface level overtures to try to limit the amount of uh, misinformation and just outright lies. It's not even misinformation. Like some of it is just is just so dangerously bad. Yeah. And I know there are people out there who think that people are smarter than that, that no way they would fall for that. But you'd be surprised what happens between the combination of blocking out other silos of of information with being on Facebook and constantly being fed opinions that justify your worst fears, that it is radicalizing people in all the worst ways. And if you have other people who are in your community of thought who think like you are and who are vulnerable to the same things, it's kind of not surprising that you have still an enormously high um, number of people in the population who don't believe certain things are true. And we see it constantly, especially in this wave of the election cycle, is that when you say, hey, you know, this actually happened, and they're like, you know, the worst, one of the worst phrases to ever be in uh, introduced into the American lexicon over the last couple of years is fake news. Mm -hmm. And because people, that's their comeback every time they hear something that goes against what they believe. And I guess that's one of the biggest ways that my profession has changed is that people used to just look to the news to figure out what was going on and to have it put into context. Now you look for the news to confirm what you already believe. So you're going into it not with mm. an open mind. You're going into it as like, I need confirmation. And you don't care where that confirmation comes from. It could come from CNN, MSNBC, Fox, Breitbart, like Federalist, any of these places. Yeah. Like as long as they tell you something you want to hear, you're all in. And that's like not the way to process information. You have to be able to critically think your way to through these things. And my fear is that we're not we're not a country that's really has a strong enough critical thinking base to stave off the 
danger of the misinformation. Yep. And I think that's showing up so strongly with everything. And um, it's really going to be kind of the undoing of, of what's been built. It's like they're going to I mean, misinformation and fear mongering combined together is an explosive cocktail. And the, and the thing about Facebook is that it gives immediate distribution and scale to misinformation that otherwise would not have had it 20 years ago. Correct. A way to look at it is everybody had a crazy relative that used to always spout conspiracy yeah. theories, right? Yeah. We all had that. Can you imagine that crazy person having millions of people they can reach right. and other finding out, oh, there are other people. And then they all form a community. And so everything that just runs through their head is certain is suddenly what everybody believes. So it's like Facebook is by far the crazy relative that believes in the in the conspiracy <laughs> theory. And because of that, like at least look, Twitter is not perfect. And I'm not here to cape for Twitter, but there's enough resistance to thought you know twitter on twitter everybody hates everything so yeah. like it doesn't matter you get so even information that's true and right they're gonna figure out a way to hate it so it's okay so there's enough checks and balances yeah. there to some degree <laughs> but on facebook there's literally none <laughs> so it's just like wow <laughs> okay let's take a quick break in this conversation to talk about one of our presenting partners public.com an investing social network it's a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. And the benefit of that community, there's built-in learning opportunities. You and I can talk about companies and market trends and benefit from investors with different perspectives as your own. And you can follow me there, at Paul Rabel, as well as other people you might know, like Tony Hawk, who's been on the show, The Breakfast Club's Angela Yee, and my favorite professor in the world, Scott Galloway. So let's play this part out because it's a major differentiator. On public, I discuss sports media and streaming trends because that's what I know. But I can also listen and learn from other people with deeper experience in tech, self-driving cars, and cannabis. Public.com has no commission fees on standard trades, and there are no account minimums to get started, which means you can invest in literally thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. So sign up today at public.com forward slash suiting up. That's public.com forward slash suiting up. And I'll get you started with $10 in free stock so you can try it out and see for yourself. Here's the fine print. Valid for U.S. residents 18 plus and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures for more. So going back to your career. So born in Detroit, went to Michigan State, and then first job out of school was Raleigh News Observer. Correct. What was that like for you and in, in the path to journalism and then getting that 10 year run to to your first uh, gig at at ESPN? I was really fortunate because I was one of those kids who knew what they wanted to do very early on. And I think that was a really big reason for my success. I, I knew in like 10th grade I wanted to be a journalist, even though I grew up in Detroit didn't know any professional journalists at that point and certainly had not been exposed enough to the world to understand even what a professional journalist did. And not just, I didn't want to just be a professional journalist. I specifically wanted to be a sports journalist. And the reason I did were, you know, selfish reasons is like I played sports, I watched sports a lot, but I also love writing. And I had a passion for telling stories early on. And every day I had to read the newspaper or I should say if I wanted to read about my favorite teams in Detroit, I had to read the newspaper. And so that had me 
looking at the newspaper in a much different way is like a source of information, but also a place where I understood learning could occur and that all those things I talked about what journalism is supposed to mean could happen there because I developed that relationship with the newspaper early on. And so, you know, in high school, I wrote for my high school newspaper. Um, I answered phones in the Free Press Sports Department, uh, the Free Press being the biggest paper in Michigan. Mm. And I developed a relationship with them early. And um, when I was 16, I joined the National Association of Black Journalists. And that was because I was a part of a a 10-week journalism program at the Free Press that they taught you about the ins and outs of journalism and uh, how to be a journalist and what to expect from the profession. And one of the things they did was they marched us uh, over to the convention, which was there, the NABJ convention, which was there that summer, and made us all apply to be student members. So I had a very good grounding in what the profession was about before I even got to Michigan State. And so when I got there, um, uh, my first semester in college, I started working for my college newspaper. And so I just started building very methodically over time. It's like I had five internships in college, again, worked at my college newspaper. And so all that uh, happened and, you know, I get the job in Raleigh. I interned in Raleigh first for uh, a few months and then they decided to hire me. And that was the natural progression and the track that I put myself on. I mean, I've never invested in doing anything else but this. I mean, hmm. this is what I'm doing now is in a different iteration than what I imagined then. I thought I was going to be a newspaper journalist for the rest of my life. My goal was actually to work at Sports Illustrated because hmm. I was about writing and the written word. The ESPN thing just kind of happened. It was just thrown into my path when I least expected it. But I've always been committed to, you know, the writing and the storytelling part of it. So now I'm, I'm still doing... I wouldn't purely call myself a journalist because, um, you know, frankly, I've chosen to embed myself in some conflicts of interest <laughs> that, you know, because I'm passionate about certain things. It's like, for example, um, I did a lot leading into the election about encouraging people to vote. That's not really what journalists do. Right. Right. So it's like I've taken up particular causes that are important to me. And so because I have, I would never consider myself necessarily a full time journalist. Hmm. I'm somebody who is a journalist by trade. I practice journalism here and there, but I wouldn't disrespect the profession by calling myself a full-time journalist. Now the path from Raleigh back to Detroit, down to Orlando, and then into Bristol, you know, we, we talk about this a lot, is that there is a race gap and there's a gender gap. Do you feel like it, it was really fucking difficult to get into the business of writing about sports as a black woman? So as the experience I think that a lot of black people have um, and it's something we've been told in our households, you know, from the time we were little, you have to be twice as good to get half as much. Every black person knows this phrase, right? And so Raleigh was just the culmination of the hard work I'd done. My first internship I got after, um, after my freshman year at the Lima News in Lima, Ohio, because I had an understanding from my high school days about what it was going to take for me to make it in this profession. If I really wanted to give it a go, there were just certain things I had to do. Um, I had to be about, you know, networking and building my clip file and, you know, putting myself in the best position of success because, you know, as a black woman, especially trying to do sports, there is going to be a ceiling you hit, a roadblock you hit, adversity that you hit. And it's going to be a little bit lonely because you're going to go into a lot of locker rooms and other things and you're going to be the only woman and definitely the only black woman in there. So 
Uh, I interned at the Lima News. I interned at the the Free Press. I interned at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Plain Dealer in Cleveland before I ever got to Raleigh. I went to Raleigh because a, a very good college friend of mine was already an intern there. And he told me, he said, hey, I know you have other internships in mind, but you really need to consider Raleigh because they actually hire their interns. And then at that point, getting a full-time job out of college was you know, the highest priority. I was like, oof. And so I, I just started building. That's why I said be, me deciding at an early age what I want to, want, wanted to be was really a very big determining factor because it allowed me to build sooner, lock in sooner, and get about the business of crafting my resume in such a way that even if they wanted to hold me back because of my gender or my race, they couldn't because of what the resume said. Yep. But it was not without trials and tribulations. Look, when I was in Orlando, and that was my first sports columnist job, I was the only black female sports columnist at a daily newspaper in North America. Hmm. I didn't say America, North America. It was 405 daily newspapers. I was the only one. Hmm. Now, some people might look at that and say, that's an accomplishment. No, it's not. That's embarrassing because I'm not the smartest you know, sports writer that ever came along, not the smartest black woman to ever write about sports. But the fact is that there was only one paper willing to find value in a black female voice says everything about where our profession was. And that was my existence. And I went through a lot of scrutiny once I got that job because columns, columnists at whatever papers, they are one of the more featured voices. They're usually among the highest paid. You know, the columnists have the TV shows, the radio shows, the book deals. Like that's kind of how it works at every place. And even though I wasn't the first columnist in, in the sports section, I was the third columnist. I was not even 30 years old. And there was a lot that came that came with that. There was a lot of scrutiny that came with that. I mean, I heard the whispers of people saying I didn't deserve to have the job and who was I and mm. all this other kind of stuff that I had to deal with. When you're black, it, those are the things that you have to face all the time going in. You have to almost convince people why you're there. Like, they're just like, oh, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times when I told people what I did for a living and they'd look at me like I just told them that I invented an alien spaceship. <laughs> like, huh? Like something is not, this is not how I imagine black people doing things. Like, I don't, I don't see, I don't see how this happened. Man. Like they have to literally have it explained. I was like, well, I knew when I was this and that. And even then they still are like, this doesn't make sense. This is, this is not what I had in mind for black people. Yeah. So you just face a lot of that and. Yeah, at times it gets really frustrating because you feel like you're always proving or always trying to convince people why you belong. Mm. And that's that's not a great feeling all the time. I mean, to, to get to the level of success that you've had and to be able to sustain it is a, an incredible feat. And so there's multiple motivators that are at play. And if that's one of them, uh, there's obviously your your ambition and your passion to write for Sports Illustrated as another. When you were younger and going through your first 10-year process before you ended up at ESPN, would you set goals? Or was it just kind of like an athlete? I'm just going to put my best product out there every day and like shit's going to happen. I had three goals that I, <laughs> I focused on. And this is, you know, mostly goals that erected in college. The uh, Sports Illustrated goal uh, was really you know, not surprising because, again, the, the people listening have to understand that you know, at that time, like Sports Illustrated was like the thing. It was the thing. It was perennial. Who was on the cover was, of Sports <laughs> Illustrated? It was the conversation Correct. every month. 
yes, that was a big deal. And so Sports Illustrated was a huge deal. So for any sports writer, like, you know, or most or a lot, like that was it. So that's how that goal formed. The other thing is like, I was thinking, man, I just want to make $50,000 a year someday. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I was in college, you know, I, I think it was Newsweek. I feel like it was Newsweek. They used to put out a list of the best professions in the in the United States, and they rank them by salary. Journalist was second to the bottom. <laughs> Law climber was a better profession than being a journalist, <laughs> according to them. As I'm not, I will never forget this. And when they they showed the average salary of a journalist was nineteen thousand dollars a year, and I was like, oh my god! Yeah. I'm like, I can't even make what I paid in tuition every Man, year. Sounds like pro lacrosse. Touche, <laughs> <laughs> uh, touche. So that's why I got into this profession. I, I tell people, I was like, I know I wound up making money, but I never expected to make money at this. Most of the journalists that I went to school with and that I knew, we all expected to be broke. We are like, this is the price of engagement. We're just going to be broke, yeah. but we're going to be out there fighting for the truth, but we're going to be broke fighting for the truth, and it's just kind of what it is. And even now, I would tell people this. They try to make it seem like journalism is an elitist profession. Maybe like magazines and big places, yes. But journalism, local journalism in particular, is a working class profession, mm. period. So, yeah, so making 50 grand, that kind of meant, you know, a lot. And working at Sports Illustrated, and I think those were the the only two goals I ever set for myself. <laughs> I had very low expectations on one of them, on the money. The strange thing is, is when I was 22 or 23, Sports Illustrated actually offered me a job. Oh. I just, yeah, they did. I just didn't take it because it wasn't right for me. You know, they offered me a job being what they call a researcher reporter. And so your job was to fact check a lot of the articles that were in the magazine. And if you had a good idea that they felt like was worthy of the magazine, you could pursue that and report on that. I didn't like the fact checking part. And I didn't, I felt too much like I was going to be like some kind of low end copy editor. And I was in Raleigh and I was writing very extensive pieces. I just won an award for best sports feature in the state of North Carolina. And so they were asking me to kind of cut off that development to kind of just for the prestige of working at Sports Illustrated and at the bottom level. And I said no. And I was like, nah. And not only that, they were trying to pay me $47,000 a year to live in New York and you know, $47,000 a year in Raleigh would have been amazing. Yeah, yeah. $47,000 a year in New York? No. Nah, it's a non-starter. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd have been, uh, you know, living in Brooklyn before Brooklyn got gentrified, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it would have been bad. So then that, that, was, that was a part of it. And I will never forget the guy who offered me a job, one of their senior editors, he said something to me that stayed with me. He said, uh, this has never happened on any interview I've been on. He said, I'm glad you turned the job down. We can afford you now. I have a feeling we'll never be able to afford you later. Wow. And he was right. And it was like, wow, okay. He Damn. he saw he saw something. Yeah, so they've never offered me a job since. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is true. Uh, even though I have friends who've worked there and, and still respect you know, some of the things they do. But um, ESPN was never on my vision board. Yeah. Ever. Never thought about working there. Being on TV to me 
was a terrible way to take my career because I thought TV people were stupid. Like I didn't really. <laughs> I didn't, what was that I transition did. like when you when you so you you were brought on ESPN to write and then you start mm-hmm. doing OTL, first take, sports reporters, yeah. and then you and Michael Smith did his and hers. But before yeah. that even progressed, what were the first conversations? Hey, we, hey, we think you you can be on screen talent, and were you hesitant around it? One of the best things about working at ESPN is that. You get to dabble in whatever you want to dabble in. I mean, during my 12 years there, there was never something that I wanted to try that they said no to because they have such a large empire. They offer you so many platforms, radio, TV, podcasting. I mean, you could do digital, like you could do anything there. So anytime you go to somebody and say, hey, on my own time, I want to do X, they're like, sure, do it, Yeah. right? So my first contract at ESPN, my agent at the time negotiated that I have 20 TV appearances in there, which I told him was stupid. I was just like, this is dumb. Like, I'm never going to be on TV. Like, I don't care about TV. And I started doing a couple shows and it started to pick up where people, I guess they saw me and they are like, oh, let's see how this this works because I was also writing and writing, I think, decent stuff. And they knew I had the opinions in me and they knew I had a point of view and one producer after next started calling me for different shows because that's kind of the way it works. It's like one producer will see you doing Around the Horn and they'll be like, oh, I think they'd be good for our show too. Let me see if they're available. So it just kind of starts its own cycle. And so I started doing Outside the Lines and uh, even before I got to ESPN, actually, I, I, I started doing, Stephen A. Smith had his own show then, quite frankly. Yep. And I, I did Stephen A. Smith show a few times and... Uh, I started doing OTL once I got there, and um, I think probably my big break, if you want to call it that, is when uh, Cold Pizza, which became First Take, was still in New York. I did the show for a week, opposite Skip as the debate foil, and after that, that one week, the First Take asked me to do the show one week a month, and they added an addendum to my contract, and then next thing you know, Jim Rome was like, hey, can you do our show? And then Sports Reporters and then Around the Horn. And it just started really, it, it started snowballing. Yeah. And I looked up, I'm two years into ESPN and half my job is television. And I think what helped is I never took it seriously from the beginning because I didn't like TV like that. I mean, I, I had fun doing it. And I think because I was myself, because I didn't take it super seriously. I just was myself from the beginning. And I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm on TV. Like, who cares? Like, yeah. whatever. And because of that attitude, sometimes ignorance actually can be helpful. Um, uh, they assumed a level of savvy with my television that wasn't actually true. It was more like, I don't give a shit. I'm just doing whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take this second break in our show to highlight our second presenting partner, OutSystems. They are a corporate sponsor of the PLLs and partner of the show that keeps our business going. OutSystems makes applications that make the difference and solve the needs for your company. Allow me to explain. They empower their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers for you. That comes in the form of web and mobile app. And for the technical heads out there, OutSystems can tackle your backlog, leverage new tech, and keep up with the changing needs so that you and I can drive future innovation. 
And for us, that was creating a COVID app last summer that every player, coach, and staff member installed into their phones in Utah. And it helped us clear regulatory health and safety protocol, making for a great experience with no COVID positive tests. We're almost out of this thing. And OutSystems does that and many more unique ideas for your businesses. They work with Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and more. Pretty reputable sources. Build the difference with OutSystems. Learn more at OutSystems.com. We connected in 2018 while you're still at ESPN when you wrote the article uh, for The Undefeated about uh, Angel Ruiz and the Sioux Nations and his team was the Seven Flames and the racism that they faced in South Dakota uh, at a youth league. Kind of going back mm-hmm. to what you had said is your truth as as a journalist is like not accepting any type of face value answer, which was like, which what hooked me when I was reading the article is like, there was some protecting going on. And this probably happens a lot in youth sports where where people just weren't going under the hood and looking. And so I remember tweeting at your, your article out and seeing if I could get in touch uh, with Angel and um, and you responded right away and you're like, I got his email, DM you. And I was like, oh shit. And that's when I started like really reading your stuff more and more and have been uh, almost a disciple since. But like that moment and, and like that type of, uh, kind of unveiling through research of what's in it from a truth standpoint. How do you go about that? I think it's really it's really simple. I guess this is where I think my lived experience, because every journalist is going to bring some lived experience to the table. And I think my lived experience as being in a marginalized group is why I could relate to that story. And granted, nothing in my high school playing career or youth playing career was similar to what they experienced. But I do know what it's like when you're in a marginalized group, in a situation where you're not protected, where you're very vulnerable to people who are intent on misunderstanding or completely dismissing your humanity. And the thing about sports and why, because people have asked me like, oh, don't you want to jump fully into politics and write about politics or write about other things? The reason why I've stayed so committed to writing about sports is sports is the one thing in this country that brings us together. Not a whole lot of things do. Mm. You know, we do so many things separately. But when it's the Olympics, what happens? We all root, like everybody's rooting for America like crazy, right? Whenever... Uh, it's any kind of major sporting event where all it's a hundred plus million people who watch the Super Bowl, so we can have that shared experience. And so, to me, the 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 stories in sports that have been able to move our conversations about race forward have been so important because of that reason. They may not be able to understand it when a politician says it or when an activist says it, but if something harmful is happening to their favorite athletes if something harmful is happening to youth athletes who just want to play who are coming from very tough circumstances who are doing everything they can to commit to a sport they might get it then and so it was important for me to ask all the questions and to dig deeper and to figure out just what was happening from a truth standpoint but more importantly for a truth to be told Mm. is that we're dealing with Um, a population that is completely invisible to a huge portion of this country, you know, and in an area that's not often talked about. We're dealing with an invisible population 
in a very unseen area. And I thought those elements made it perfect to tell the story that is relatable to what's happening in other parts of the country. Just seeing what they had gone through and um, what they faced, I mean, it was hard not to relate to it. And as I told you earlier in our conversation, I, I think to be a good journalist, you one, have to be curious, and number two, you gotta have a sense of justice. Mm. And that justice doesn't always come on the side you think it will come on, <laughs> you know? But there's something in you that's gotta be driving you to right or wrong or to bring attention and awareness to something that's not right. If you don't have that sense of justice, then you're gonna be a terrible journalist. Yeah, I, th I think that that story in particular hit home for a lot of us. With lacrosse, it's a Native American game. Correct. And so the, the, the game was created by the Onondaga Nation. It's called the Medicine Game, and, uh, and it's part of the, the Iroquois Six Nations and the Iroquois Confederacy now, which was formerly before French colonists came in. It was known as the Haudenosaunee. And a number of nations across North America play lacrosse, and they have different names for it. Um, and so it has become commercialized. But, you know, it's interesting. During our season, we had uh, Black Lives Matter patches on our jerseys. And that was met with a lot of reaction as it was in, in all leagues because of the political hijacking related to just people trying to ignore the, the actual three words that, were, that are and continue to be really important for us as just one of many steps forward. How much bending do you do as a communicator, as, as, a, as a journalist, as, as an influencer, if, if the goal is to try to just get people there, or is it not? Or is it like, if you're not gonna get there, you need to be called out? It's funny because I think at different points in my life, I've done both. And now I'm in this season of, I can't take any more excuses. Like I, I, I can't. And at this point in our history as a country, though we're still in many ways a very young country when it comes to the perceived notion of equality, right? Mm. What people have to understand is that for black people, we ain't gotta go back that far to find somebody, like my mother couldn't vote when she was born, right? My grandmother, she's not alive now, couldn't vote for a huge percentage of her life. So we don't even have to go back that far, mm. right? And so this idea that we're so progressed, we need to lose that idea. And even when it comes to our indigenous people, is that they don't have to go far back to find, they're suffering through the injustice right now, mm -hmm. but they definitely in their family history don't have to go back very far to be like, yep, this, was, this is what it was. And so now I can't give people any excuse. We have a wealth of information available. And what I've come to see, and it's not easy to accept, is that the people who don't wanna understand are intentional about not doing so. This is not a matter of ignorance, which I think we hope it is because we hope like, oh, if I just present this in a different way, then they will get it. And if we really think about it, that has not worked that many times. It really hasn't worked at all, right? Martin Luther King Jr., who might be one of the greatest, if not the greatest humanitarian who ever lived, Let's not forget they still murdered him. Let's not forget this. It's like he was fighting for very basic freedoms and doing it in a way that was the most peaceful you can think of. This was a man committed to nonviolence. He learned from Gandhi. You can't get any more nonviolent and peaceful than Martin Luther King Jr. 
and his reward was being murdered. So this idea that we can package this in some acceptable message that everybody's going to get on board with is a lie. All of our progress has come through force. It's come through legal action. It's come through resistance. So when people say things like, well, why don't they try another way or this method? Like a lot of the people who have problems with Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick just literally (laughs) took a knee because a person in the military told him it was that much more respectable. Mm -hmm. This entire country freaked out over a knee. Okay. And so it is, that is why this idea that we can appeal to people's sensibilities, it doesn't work because history has shown that's not the case. So unfortunately in this moment that you asked this question, I believe in shame. I believe in accountability And frankly, I believe that some of those people we just got to leave behind if we want to progress as a nation. We can't let them hold us back. We got to leave them behind. Either you're going to be on board or you're not. And so I'm done asking for equality. I'm done. Like, but that, that is like out the window. The humanity is the least of what you deserve. I mean, that is a given. So I'm like, I'm done asking. Like, I'm not appealing to these people who really don't want to understand. They keep bringing up roadblocks in which they cannot understand. They're doing this on purpose. And I don't have the energy for it anymore. So, frankly, they just going to have to take this shame and take this retribution and take all that comes with it. So I don't feel sorry for them at all. Like, this is what it is. And and I like like how you say ignorance is not acceptable and it's also not really a thing uh, because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a decision that that people make, even to your call out on Colin Kaepernick, like Nate Boyer, who was an army green beret. Yep. Like that story is out there. And Colin like sought his advice. And he said, instead of sitting, genuflecting, taking a knee might feel more respectful. And they like agreed to that. And Colin was also very, you know, forthcoming with him saying, I I don't want this to be like a middle ground either. Like the message needs to be very clear. And that's time and time again, whether it's Lou Alcindor, whether it's Billie Jean King, whether it's, it's Abby Wambach or Megan Rapino. And it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's a constant struggle. As a country, we got the greatest brochure that's ever been put out. Hmm. Like our brochure is awesome. <laughs> Talking about, you know, freedoms and liberties and all those kind of things. And I find in this regard, the majority of our country is very undereducated about what our actual history is. And because there is, we can't even agree on it, it leads to us continuing to perpetuate these falsehoods that we've all been told. And unless you critically think or you seek certain information for yourself, you're going to believe this is, this is what it is. You know, people don't even understand that at the critical juncture where it's not convenient, most of us have always been on the wrong side of history. When you go back and look at all the polls that were taken during Martin Luther King's time as the prominent civil rights leader. The majority of Americans were against the pursuit of civil rights. The majority of Americans thought that Martin Luther King was negatively damaging race race relations. The majority of Americans considered things like the Freedom Riders and the fight for justice. They thought it was a back burner issue. What I always look at whenever I look at footage from the civil rights movement, I look at the people in the background. You know, when you have somebody like Ruby Bridges who is integrating her school, I look at all the white people standing around her who are yelling at a child for just simply wanting to be educated. Mm. And I wonder where those people are. And there are so many people who throughout 
very critical junctures in our history who are committed to the wrong side. Just like we just saw 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump committed to the wrong side. That is the actual American story. And unfortunately, we have been taught that we're so much better than we actually are. This is not to say we're irredeemable, but it is to say that this notion that we are somehow better than what we think is one that is crippling us from moving forward. Uh, I made this comparison um, in this respect to, to Nazi Germany, is that you can say a lot of things about, I mean, obviously horrible, awful what happened there. In the aftermath, it was very interesting how, the, how Germany as a country dealt with that part of their history, which is the most horrific of, of what they'd experienced. You know, when you go to Germany, you know what you don't see is statues of Nazis. You know what you don't see is roads named after Nazis. You don't see them having an entire memorial for Hitler. They like paved right over where his bunker was. It's like a, a normal street. You don't even know it was there. You know what you see in America? John Lewis, who is one of the great Americans who lived, fought for voting rest rights, in peace. had his head, yeah, rest in peace, John Lewis, had his head cracked open trying to fight for voting rights for black folks. The bridge he walked was the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Google who Edmund Pettus is. Edmund Pettus was a notorious racist who was a leader of the KKA. There's a bridge named after Edmund Pettus that John Lewis walked on to get voting equality. The bridge still stands. John Lewis is dead. That's America in a nutshell. Mm. These Confederate symbols we have everywhere. We have so many schools named after racists, it's not even funny. Mm. We memorialize our racism. And we wonder why we can't move past this point. And so that's why I look at Germany and I'm like, this is really... I mean, they went through a period that is one of the most awful in history with what they did to Jewish people. And they have no memorials. And they even paid reparations. They have no memorials. They're like, we did it. We own it. It is what it is. This is not to say everything in Germany is perfect, but it is to say they got that right. Yep. We did not. (laughs) Okay. I think truth and reconciliation uh, starting with the right education is is really important. But what I also like about your articles that you do for The Atlantic is you very frequently tell both sides of the story. And one that to cap a, a, a really difficult 2020 or start a really difficult 2020 for us uh, was the sudden death of, of Kobe and Gianna, his daughter. And, and rest in peace to both of them and the impact that they've had on so many people in different ways. You reflected on, on a time with Kobe where he had made a remark about the Trayvon Martin murder. Kobe texted or tweeted you or texted you immediately and you got on the phone and talked to him for an hour. And then that turned around on the next of obviously like many police brutalities and murders that we had in this country with Michael Brown. But like, tell us that story and as an example of like, these conversations are important with all people. Most importantly, I think, you know, as a journalist, that's kind of, you know, what you you hope is the standard of what happens. I've had a number of sources who have been mad at me because of something I've said about them or written about them. And when we're able to have that conversation and go back and forth and come to a greater understanding of each other's position, it's, it's usually led to something that's a teachable moment. So in this particular case, Kobe had said some what I thought were very tone deaf statements about Trayvon Martin. And I think a lot of it was just that he was leaning into his own experience with the criminal uh, justice system, the court system in particular. So he was on that 
you know, we don't have all the facts and, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm, I'm just like, this is a child. Like this, yeah. Trayvon Martin was 17 years old. George Zimmerman was not the police. And I'm not even saying that would have made it right. But he was no authority over him at all. And it, everything about that case just harkened back, you know, to, to the days of um, even post-slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow. Many periods we have been throughout in this country where people had felt like they had the right to police the behavior, the whereabouts of black people. To the point where if you were just, I mean, there's a phrase, it's called sundown towns, right? There was many sundown towns across the America, meaning if you were black and in a sundown town, if you were there past sundown, they were going to lynch you, period. That's That was the rule of the land. So at any rate, he said these comments. I thought they were really insensitive and wasn't taking into account the things that happened that we knew that happened in this case. And I said it on air. I was just like, this was not one of his finer moments. Um, disappointing, you know, whatever other adjectives you want to throw in there. And maybe five minutes after I said it, I was really surprised. I, it, one of his representatives reached out and then Kobe DM me personally, like a couple minutes later and was like, I need to talk to you after your show. And I was like, I have never spoken to Kobe Bryant personally at this point. I mean, I've been in some interview scrums where I'd interviewed him, but I never, never talked to him one on one. So, uh, and then another rep, like, I, honestly, by the time I got off air and we had maybe 20 minutes to go on the show, I had like four messages, like, call Kobe, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. So I told him I called him when I was leaving and um, leaving ESPN. So I called him in my car and I'm like, hey, you know, and we started talking and he was like, so I need you to understand my perspective. So he explains his perspective. He's like, I didn't mean it, you know, like it came off. I didn't mean to sound insensitive, whatever, whatever. And I just was like, look, I, I know you probably weren't saying like, oh, you know, you weren't trying to be callous toward the Trayvon Martin's family. But I, I need you to understand some very important cases here. Like if he's white, he's alive. Like that's number one. OK. And two, this is not related to what you've been through. Like this is this couldn't be more wildly different. Like this is not the time for you to try to make a point about X. And so, but when he shared his perspective about like kind of what he felt he'd been through, I understood it. And I, I didn't necessarily agree he should have said it, but like we we came to a great understanding and it was a really good teachable moment. And so, you know, we're winding down the conversation and he's like, I really appreciated this. And I was like, look, feel free if you feel like you need to clear anything up and you don't want people to think that you have disparaged Trayvon Martin you're welcome to come on the show and, and clear this up he didn't want to do that he was like no I, I don't want to do this I don't want to make this about me which I totally understood why he would say this and um he was just like you know I appreciate this conversation he's like look going forward you ever need anything call me here's my number this is it you know I, I appreciate you being stand up enough to call me and have this conversation I was like, anytime. And I was like, I appreciate you sharing your perspective so that it better informs me as I go forward and talk about this. And so we ended on a really good note and it was great. And then I, I hit him up maybe a month or so later. And because BT, I was um, doing some things for them. And I asked him, I was like, hey, would you, you have any interest in sitting down with me at BT weekend? And I don't know, it's just like shooting shit and, you know, in the Q&A. He's like, absolutely, I'm in. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, 
eh, he might be giving me the I'm in, but I'm not really in. Yeah. Oh no, he was in because like I didn't. <laughs> I, after he said yes, and I didn't contact him for a couple weeks because I was still ironing things out about the logistics with BT. He hit me up. He's like, hey, we doing this BT shit or not? And I was like, sorry, Kobe. Yes, we are still doing yeah, yeah. this. <laughs> He's like, are we doing this? He's like, I'm in. Like I told you, I was in. I was like, you are, you are in. Yeah, it was great. And that day we did that Q&A where he was, you know, so open and honest. And the part that really just struck me because the the only thing he wanted from it, like a, a huge star like him, he could charge whatever he wants. And the only thing he wanted from BT was for them to pay for his helicopter. That was all he wanted mm. um, because he lived. Uh, I think he lived in Orange County. Um or Manhattan Beach. He lived far yeah. from where downtown where, where they were. That's all he wanted was that. So I met him at his at the helipad and you know, we we were just, you know, talking and laughing and he was giving me shit because I've never seen Finding Nemo. And he was telling me then how much he was into storytelling and mm. how he felt like this was about to be the next iteration of where his life was taking him. And I joked with him on stage when we were at BT. I was like, dude, I just could never see you happy in retirement. Like, you're going to be one of those people. You're going to be trying to come back a couple times. <laughs> and he's like, no. He's like, I'm telling you, when I'm done, I'm done. Like, I, he's like, I don't see it. He's like, there's another passion in me that I feel like I need to fulfill. And, of course, Kobe knows himself better than I know him, of course. And he was really happy in it. And to see him win an Oscar, you know, just so quickly after retiring and to really be able to fulfill these creative desires that he had. He was right. And so uh, of the many horrible things that have happened in 2020, people forget that we started the year with that. Yeah. We kind of started the year with that being the first just real blow to what has happened. And living in Los Angeles, I, I mean, this city has seen a lot of people famous who have passed. You know, Whitney Houston died here. Michael Jackson died here. Nothing was like Kobe Bryant. <sighs> You know, this city was in mourning. Yeah. I mean, and you could feel it everywhere you went. Oh, I remember. And it was, yeah, it was, it was tough. So, um, I had a, it, you know, it was, you know, I, I, I had seen again people in your profession. You know, at some point, people you cover, people you talk to, they're not going to be there anymore. But this one was, you know, definitely the toughest I had experienced as, you know, just a professional journalist and the way it happened and, and just everything. And, and with Gianna, like mm. he becomes such a champion for the WNBA. It was like, it's so much that was rolled into this and he was really living his, the second iteration of his life in a way that was, you know, so remarkable and he was just scratching the surface. So it's, it's even still very tough to think about. Yeah. I remember exactly where I was. I, f I felt like almost paralyzed for the whole day. Um, and then I remember the following day in an elevator getting push notified that Barack Obama tweeted about him. And it was just like what he stood for as an athlete, what he was able to then do as a storyteller, as an entrepreneur, as an investor. I mean, to me, Kobe was that person who you quote when you say, Sports has a unique foothold in our society because it encourages people to do things together. Like he crossed over communities, political ideologies, religious views, genders, race, and, uh, and he had that ability to do that. And then what really struck me when you wrote that story was his ability to, to listen and yeah. be with you there. And then when the Michael Brown tragedy happened, he tweeted, the system enables young black men to be killed behind the mask of law. And that, to me, felt like I was, I was listening to you 
and this moment that you had with him that built a relationship it was a reminder is no matter how big or no how how much of a star or how successful you are to to listen the thing about kobe though is that um he's an information absorber like he's like a, a, a he he was a cyborg in that respect and so if there's something he doesn't understand trust me he's going to get to the bottom of why he didn't understand it and what was even before Michael Brown happened, he made amends with Trayvon's parents. And he, him and Vanessa even spoke at one of the rallies that they had. And what was beautiful to see beyond just him opening up, I think, opening himself up more and like really going comfortable in his own skin in the last maybe six or seven years of his career was that he became more of a voice. I mean, when I interviewed him again at ESPN, you know, it was one of the last, it was probably the last big interview that I did before I left there was with him. And he talked about how that if he were still playing, he would have taken a knee with Colin. And mm. these issues became so central for him. Like he went from, you know, saying what he said about Trayvon Martin to it taking the utmost importance in his life mm. and, and in his awareness, I should say, just wanting to be a stronger voice in that. And so I had no doubt that, especially with how we saw NBA players in the bubble and the conversations we've been having this year, just about racial recon, uh, you know, reconciliation and understanding, I have no doubt that Kobe would have been in the middle of all of these conversations. Mm -hmm. The WNBA has, have been the leaders as well, and, and worth noting their ratings were up 68%. I'll leave you with this. When you speak to athletes and commissioners, and as we look at 2021, what do you hope to see in, in way of the continued conversation? What I hope is that people don't relax. And we saw this when Obama was elected president and the cost of the apathy that occurred after he we went through the moment of, oh, we got the first black president. And I understand why that apathy occurred, because at that moment, I think a lot of people, understandably so, were looking at the history of America and thinking like, OK, I know we don't have a great history. I know it's been slavery. It's been Jim Crow. It's been all these things. But man, we at least got to a point where we can elect a black president and there is a certain level of celebration that needs to take place. Totally understand that. The problem is once we did that, everybody fell down on the job because Obama never had a Senate that was in his favor. Nobody showed up for the midterms. OK, yeah. and we just were so impressed with the symbolism of a black president that we didn't dare to look at what was building as a result is that of course when we take this turn in american history that nobody saw coming or nobody could predict that was when the forces of hatred were going to build stronger than ever and we didn't pay attention to it mm. we just let it build and persist so you know conservatives were playing the long game by having begun their voter suppression efforts mm. and really honed in on them during that time because they didn't want another Obama possible. And we never even saw it coming because we were too impressed with the symbolism. Mm. So I don't want people to make the same mistake. Don't be impressed with the symbolism of having the first black woman, the first South Asian woman as the vi vice president. Don't be impressed with the fact that even though there were 70 million people that voted for Donald Trump, the majority of people in this country rejected him and thinking that that is that we're all good and we're all fine. What has been done these last four years has to be undone. 
and not just about the four years. Like, if we want to make sure we're not having the same conversations that we're having now, the same conversations that Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and Fannie Lou Hamer were all having then, we got to get serious about eradicating racial prejudice, systemic racism, and all these things right now. Are we just going to hand the same problems down to our kids and to their grandkids and whatever? I need the urgency to be there. I need people to these next however many years to act like Donald Trump is still in office because that was the one silver lining that came out of this is that the sense of urgency, the need to mobilize was at a fever pitch that cannot go away because the presidency, frankly, was just a small bit of this. There is so much to undo and to unpack and to change. And it's only going to happen with bold, brave steps that are going to make a lot of people truly uncomfortable. Appreciate you, Jamel. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Jamel wants the urgency to last. Bold and brave steps being taken by all. What a great speaker, writer, author, and host. Thank you again, Jamel. Your time and insights were so valuable to me. I'll share one reflection before signing off. When Jamel Hill says it makes us uncomfortable to talk about this stuff, to change the course of history, she means it. I can't tell you personally how many times I get DMs and mentions from people after I post about Black Lives Matter or gender inequality who say all lives matter and quote, hate against all needs to stop. And what I'll say is that I, and I know Jamel would say this too, we agree, all lives do matter. We've never said they don't. We should aspire to be a unified body that condemns all hate, racism, and criminality. And, and we should have the ability and encourage the ability to focus on isolated incidents of racism, oppression, crime, historical genocide and slavery that have spanned generations so we can educate ourselves and especially take action moving forward towards and for Native Americans and indigenous groups around the world, for black people, Asian Americans, and just don't stop there. During and after Women's History Month, let's continue to talk about the history of gender inequality and the challenges that women have faced historically and through today. How the wonderful and powerful women in the world are also black, white, brown, and everywhere in between. For those of you who stuck around through the end, thank you. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel and Jamel's is at Jamel Hill. That's J-E-M-E-L-E-H-I-L-L. Check out her podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, available on Spotify. And please consider subscribing to Suiting Up on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this show. And while you're at it, give us a short rating and review. That would go a long way. I greatly appreciate it. This show is presented by public.com by creating a whole new way to invest. Public also makes the stock market social, so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. Follow me on public. I'm at Paul Rabel. For my weekly musings on public companies to invest in sports media and tech, I've also been showcasing the companies that I invest in. This week, I'll give you some tips and reflections on the retail world of sports, as well as the big sporting manufacturers and footwear and apparel. And thank you, OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps, web and mobile. When it comes to the PL, they helped us design our COVID app last summer to ensure the health and safety of all of our player, staff, coaches within our bubble. We use OutSystems. You should too. Check them out, OutSystems.com. 
And everything on this show is made possible by our incredible team here at PLL Podcast. Thank you to the producer and editor, Brett Roberts, sitting across from me. Research done by Andrew Manny. Graphics and design by Liam Murphy. Coordinated by RJ Kaminsky. And support on our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week with an all-new guest. You'll find out next Sunday.